Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Coaches Or podcast. Today, we are joined by David Lajlo. David has been involved in youth hockey over 30 years. Among others, he started to coach in the United States and then he came over to Europe. And he also started to study in the degree program of sports coaching and management, where Derek and I are still currently in. Um, then he was coaching, I think, one year with the Junior Pelicans. And afterward, he moved on to Frederikshafen. Now he's in Stavanger. And next season, he will move back to Finland and uh, will work with the Vasa Sport Youth Organization. And the reason why I'm mentioning is this because um, David has gained so many experiences in different cultures. And that is very, very interesting to me. And we also discussed this in the episode, how these cultures have been influencing him and what he has been taking away from these. And furthermore, what I also found very unique about David, his passion for youth hockey, I think it's very similar to yours, Derek. Um, he has been involved over more than 30 years now in youth hockey and he doesn't want to go anywhere else. Yeah, for sure. And it, it always excites me to talk to someone that's specifically interested in, in youth hockey like David is because it's, it's something that, you know, you, you see a good amount of, but it's not like he he puts it, it it's pretty rare in the hockey world. So um, it's, it's a lot of fun for me to talk youth hockey. So it's a great conversation with David, especially um, as a fellow American that's come over here to Europe and now experiencing, you know, the, the way that Europe does youth hockey. It's really interesting to hear his kind of experiences and the stories that he's picked up on and, and just kind of the, the way that he coaches now. And, and it's, a, it's a fun conversation with a really passionate guy and a lot of energy. So um, I think everybody will enjoy it. And let's not waste any more time here and let's kick it over to David. All right, so now we'd like to welcome on David Laszlo, an alumni from our program here in Viramaki. Uh, David, thanks for joining us today. How's everything going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to having a good conversation. Yeah, you've been in the, the youth hockey game for a while now, and, and you started in the States. You've been to Finland and, I believe, Denmark and Norway. Um, can you just give a, a little bit about yourself and how those experiences were a little bit, and then also um, how you got over here to Europe? So started uh, coaching hockey when I was about 16 years old. Um, wasn't enjoying playing as much and got an opportunity to be an assistant coach in a, in a little program in New Canaan, Connecticut. Uh, that started my coaching career off and also started working at an ice rink for the first time. So I learned how to drive the Zamboni and sharpen skates and, and you know, clean up hot chocolate messes and all of those kind of fun things. Uh, that was about 35 years ago now. Um, and for some strange reason, I've, I've never left the coaching part. Uh, went to uh, New York University uh, and played club hockey there um, as a walk-on, just kind of, and it was, it was club, it was ACHA, um, or even before ACHA. So that's, to me, that was nothing really special. Um, but it was nice to play hockey for a year in college. And this is after I had basically given up on the game um, as, a, as a player. Uh, but I was still coaching at the time. And that year, I actually remember I was coaching um, another team in Connecticut. I was an assistant. And we played against Chris Drury's team. 
And that was the year Chris Drury, uh, his hockey team won the national championship and his little league baseball team won the little league world series. And he was the pitcher in that game. And I'm looking at, at that and I'm, you know, some idiot 19, 20 year old. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, that's the top of this kid's career. You know, he just won two national championships in a year. He'll never do anything after this. You know, how, how much can you peak in a life? And, and he goes on to a, a great career with Boston um, in, in uh, college and then uh, moves on and helps uh, win a Stanley Cup. And now he's a um, big time guy. And, and so that's that really, you know, five, eight years later, when I'm watching that unfold, that changed my ideas of who really can make it. And, and multi-sport athlete was in there, but, but also all these kind of other tidbits of, we can't judge it. We can't look at a 13 or 14 year old and say, oh, you're the best. Uh, so whatever. And so those, that kind of shaped some of my early learning. Um, I had a chance, uh, I transferred schools and got a teaching degree out of uh, University of Northern Colorado. Uh, I was coaching in both uh, uh, where was I coaching Littleton and Fort Collins and did some skill training, uh, with some different groups. Uh, that was interesting. And then got my first teaching job in Michigan and Michigan is triple a country. Uh, so they've got more triple a teams than in Chicago. Uh, it's, it's incredible how, how much good talent, how many good players are there. Uh, so I, I coached with, uh, Caesars, Compuware, uh, Honeybaked, Beltire. I had all the jackets because every year, you know, you're finding a new job. Um, one of my huge experiences there was being the assistant coach to Victor Fedorov, that's Sergey's dad. Uh, so I got to skate with Sergey Fedorov sometimes, and and just I got to listen and learn and and ask questions of of Victor. And he doesn't talk much. He, he reminds me a little bit of Erica Westerland. You, you don't hear him say much, but everything he says is, is a kernel of truth. It's, it's real wisdom. Um, and on that team was Jack Johnson. And so here's a, another 13-year-old kid. Um, actually, he was playing a year up. I think that was an 86 team, and he was an 87, if I remember. Um, and he ends up going on to, to both a collegiate and a pro career. Uh, so that was, that was interesting. Uh, journeyed down to uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and then found myself in Raleigh, North Carolina uh, for various reasons. Uh, and there I was um, working as a manager of a, a hockey pro shop. Um, and then I ended up owning my own hockey pro shop. Through that shop, I got uh, reconnected with USA Hockey uh, and became a, um, a coaching education uh, leader, uh, teacher, instructor. Sorry. Um, so that was, that was an excellent connection. And that was in Ty Newberry's district. So he's, he's just, he was your Southeast uh, coach in chief. Um, so he and I got into some conversations and, and I was working with what became the junior hurricanes. Um, but that also led me to start a 10 year, uh, summer experience where I got to go to the national camps and work as a team leader at the national camps. 
uh, all, all throughout that time I was doing the USA clinic. So I'm a level five coach. Um, and, and through those experiences with the national camps, you get to meet everybody. You get to meet the junior coaches, the college coaches, the up and coming guys, the guys who have been there for years, uh, guys like Jamie Rice, who's over at Babson, um, he's completely small game spaced and you can just sit and listen and ask and, and wonder and draw and say, okay, well, what about this? And these are the coaches that are the types of guys that they're just going to talk to you and, and hear you out and, and enjoy the conversation and challenge you and, and make you think differently. Uh, and then I needed something else. I needed something new. And back when I was in Michigan, Sean Skinner, who's a, a stick handling and, and skating uh, trainer, he told me about Veramaki. So I actually applied uh, right when I got to Ohio, I applied and got the phone call and the interview with, with Erica Westerland and ended up, this is, I can't even remember, it's 90, 2002, something like that. Well, yeah, the first first year was uh, started in 2002. DP1 started in 2002. I was, or I am a DP17 slash was, and we started in 2018. Okay, so 2003, 2004, I'm in the I am in the application process. So thank you, um, and get accepted. And one of my questions is, okay, well, I'm living the American dream. I have a car. I have. I have credit cards. I have, uh, you know, this and that financial obligation. If I go to this program, can I work and pay off those debts and all that kind of thing? And they said, no, this is a full-time academic program. You need to be hundred percent committed to this. And I, I said, okay, I have to defer. So I deferred for several years and that was life altering right there because I had this, this, this cherry that I was reaching out towards this, this beautiful fruit that I was like, Oh yeah, there's, there's different education. There's a different way of thinking about hockey. Um, and I couldn't do it. So when I got to Carolina, um, the first couple of years I did the normal thing. And then I just said, no, I want to go to that program. And with the help of some family and some, some really, really important friends of mine, I worked my, my way out of debt. So I became debt-free. I actually have a savings account and I reapplied and I'm DP 12. Uh, I'm a thesis away from graduating. So my, my goal six years after I've left the program is to actually write that bloody thesis and, and get it turned in and um, get the, the piece of paper that says I completed this journey. Uh, and now that I'm heading back to Finland to, uh, to go work in, in Vasa Sport, uh, that's going to kind of reconnect me with, with that part of it. Uh, so there's your long winded 35 year journey. Uh, there's, there's some other pieces that I'm, I'm leaving out, uh, coaching a year in Oregon where there's barely any hockey, um, and meeting some great people along the way, uh, had two years in Windsor, Ontario, where I was that American guy. Um, and that was when I was losing games. They were nice and polite to me. I was just that American guy. But when my team started winning games, then they, they had some other nicknames for me. So, uh, so yeah. And uh, in Europe, I've been coaching. Uh, like you said, I coached in Lati in Finland for a year while I was at Veramaki as part of my Veramaki experience. Uh, 
three years in Frederickstown, uh, Denmark. Uh, and now I've just finished uh, the third year of my contract here in Norway. And I'm headed to Vasa Sport starting next year. Starting well, in a first, couple months. Yeah, well, first of all, that's a, that's a very extensive background and you have a lot of kilometers so far driven your car, your coaching car. So that's, oh, <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Bless you, no worries, no worries. Um, so, but it's it's very, very interesting because you have been coaching for such a long time now and you have gained so many experiences in different cultures and even when you have been coaching in the United States, you have been coaching in so many different states and um, based from, from the things what Derek has been telling me and what I've been hearing and based on my own experience, um, Every stage is also so unique and so different. And um, then you moved to Europe, you started to study here in Viromeki. And um, well, then you got the opportunity also to work in, as I said, in Frederikshafen. Um, now you work in Stavanger, now you move to start, um, now you go back, come to back to Finland to work in Baza Sport. And um, what is very fascinating um, for us actually is that, as I said, you had gained so many experiences in so many different cultures. and. Your good friend and classmate, um, Uli, he actually um, uh, gave us the idea about, about this entire thing here and uh, about the question where I'm going right now is that um, based on that, um, the entire influence you had. Um, so how can, can you a little bit describe your balance uh, and your feelings and what, what did you bring from different cultures and what you have been learning there and how did you adapt all the time? Because it's a really which experience? And can you compare and contrast these a little bit? So the, the American uh, youth sport experience at the travel level, at the competitive level, is all about making a team. And then once you have that team identity, we are this team, that's it. There's no sharing, there's no uh, cooperation. It's just this team. So in hockey, it's, it's approximately uh, 17 kids, 15 kids, two goalies. And that varies a little bit. Um, but basically that's your team and that's it. That team practices together. That team has usually has uh, at starting at Wee or Ben, starting at 13, 14 has full ice practices alone and they have maybe two or three a week depending on what level they're at as you get older you get a little bit more uh, the other piece about the american experience is everything is privately run so it's expensive ice rinks are privately owned uh, there are differences in say minnesota where you have community ranks uh, canada is community-based ranks uh, but they do have privately owned ranks as well uh, so, you know, you have Toronto, which has a whole bunch of privately owned drinks. Ice costs $400, $500 an hour. So any moment you spend talking on the ice is money that you are spending to stand on the ice, $5 a minute, $7 a minute to stand and talk on the ice. So that really impacted me when people were telling me, look, this is, this is really, really expensive. Uh, if you, if you, if you have a kid stand in line for 10 minutes in a practice, 
that kid just lost, you know, 50, $75 worth of ice time. If you have an entire team standing around. Um, so that influenced me and, and, and the ADM program with, with USA hockey is very big in no lines, no laps, no lectures, get the kids moving, get them moving as much as you can. Um, and, and I really got to thinking about that and, and I was doing it while I had only 15 kids on the ice. I was like, okay, this is easy. I can, I can easily get kids moving. There's only 15 of them. You know, you have two stations and you have everybody moving and the work to rest is, you know, half and half. Um, and I patted myself on the back thinking, you know, yay me, this is, this is really easy. And then, then I got to Lati and the, the first practice with the D juniors that I had in Lati had 44 kids on the ice. And my mind is just going, and I'm trying to figure out how do I get 44 kids moving? How do I make no lines, no laps, no lectures, a reality with 44 kids? Thank God I also had six, eight really, really good uh, parent volunteer coaches who could run a station, who could do these kind of things. And, and Veramaki helps in that way because they're, you know, they're preparing you. Hey, you're going to, to these programs. They don't divide by one team. They divide by age groups. Uh, so that, that was the biggest uh, contrast to how I was coaching. And then when I got to, to Denmark, it, it went back down to, to lower numbers because they don't have as many kids. So they'd actually have two-year age groups to try and get 15 or 20 kids in a group. And then I had to rethink, okay, how do I run practices with, you know, these, these small areas, but, but 15 to 20 kids. Um, in Norway, I'm, I'm back to, to 40 kids on the ice on a regular basis. Uh, that has transitioned as the kids got older. I've, I've divided the groups and, and divided up some of the ice. So I'll have groups of 20 to 25, but that's still bigger than what I was doing in the U.S. Um, the, the thing that I think I bring is I'm still uh, American competitive which I think is, and I don't want to say that in, in those terms, it's, it's, not, it's not just general competitiveness. There's, there's something uh, borderline idiotic about American competitiveness that we just, we don't understand how to accept losing. I, I actually, and you, you can read interviews of all these different coaches and I'm, I'm stealing their words. It's not that I like winning, Everybody likes to win. Winning to me is a relief. And other coaches have said the same thing. It's a relief. I didn't lose because I hate losing. I can't stand losing. I don't mind getting beat because that means I'm playing against a better team. A better team shows up and they beat us. Okay, I can handle that. Losing means we gave up. We gave something to a not so good team and we let them play and we let them beat us. That's losing. And I can't stand that. So there's, there's this aspect of, of that, um, that, that not being willing to let teams give up 
I don't care that we're down by four goals with five minutes to go. We haven't lost this game yet. Let's go pick it up. Um, I do have uh, a little bit different understanding of uh, in, in Europe, it's tackling in the U S it's checking. Um, we do more training in the U S on how to tackle. It's, it's a bigger part of the, the North American game. So I, I want to say that it's not just us, it's Canada, uh, than it is here. Not that it doesn't exist here. It's just not trained to such an extent. It's not such a big part of the game. So coming into the, the U14, U15 years, I really focus on, on the, the tackling part, the stick positioning, uh, stick on stick, how to use your body. And that it becomes somewhat okay to go for the body first in order to get puck separation. I still want you leading with your stick first, stick on stick. The goal is to get puck separation. But sometimes puck separation means leaning into the body before you lean into the puck. Uh, in, uh, in a lot of the places, I, I think they, they just don't teach it as, as its own skill. It's just go, do, tackle. Oh, this guy likes to tackle, fine, whatever. Um, the, uh, I was going to add another thought on the balance. <sighs> well, and now I've lost it, but yeah. Yeah, no worries. I, I'm wondering, cause you know, as an American that is now in, in Finland, um, it's, it's hard to kind of, or it can be hard to kind of adapt to the culture and, and, and learn about the, the people you're working with and everything like that. So I'm wondering if like, if you could take a step back from hockey now and, and kind of describe how you, move to all the different cultures and what are the steps you take to, to get to know the people, to get to know how they live, the things that are important to them and, and how do you kind of use that into your, to your coaching with that kind of specific club or, or team? So the biggest piece there is the language. Um, Finland was, was probably the hardest because the, the culture hasn't, um, they haven't adopted to English as fast as the Danes and the Norwegians or as deep as the Danes and the Norwegians. Uh, so the, the older generation had a, a, a more difficult time having conversations with me. And so I, I I focused on being very careful with what words I was choosing and it made me talk less, which, you know, you guys are in Finland. So, you know, that that's a very positive cultural aspect to those other Finns. Um, I learned to be able to sit in a sauna quietly and not feel like I needed to fill the empty space with conversation. And Again, going into the school setting in, in Veramaki was excellent because the other students were there to support this and to, to teach me and to take me along. And they, they're 19, 20, 21-year-old guys. So they have some English background. They, they've watched all the American movies. They've, they've played the video games with people from around the country. And English is the, the, the main language of those video game groups. Um, 
Denmark, I actually, uh, part of my contract allowed me to take Danish language classes and Danish culture classes uh, for, and that's part of the government as well. So it was um, an offer from the government to the employer, employer. So I was able to do that. And the Danish and the Norwe Norwegian language are, they're not similar, but they're based around similar things. So there's a lot of, of words that, that cross over, uh, a lot of phrases, but then I'm in a, a very um, specific part of Norway where they have their own dialect. So I had to change uh, yai for me into egg. So they don't use the, the, the soft G at the end, they use the hard G. Um, and that I had to get my ear wrapped around that. And so I can actually understand a little bit more than what the Norwegians think I can understand, but only if I can catch the main part of, of what they're talking about. Um, there's a couple books and a couple articles uh, that I've read. Uh, the, the Almost Nearly Perfect People, which talks about um, all the Scandinavian countries and the, the similarities and the differences and the types of people that they are. And then I just actually, I read an article about um, how native English speakers impact uh, English language as spoken by non-natives. So when non-natives are having conversations in English, uh, for example, at Vermaki, you've got, you got Belgians, you've got Germans, you've got Americans, you've got Canadians, um, and they're all trying to speak English. Um, it's actually, uh, better if I speak what I would consider bad or, or broken English than speaking perfect English um, and correcting people and making sure that their English was perfect. Um, and also the, the idioms that we use, the sports terms. Um, you know, oh, you hit a home run on that one. How many, how many uh, Belgians understand what hitting a home run is about? Uh, Finns would because they have Finnish uh, baseball. Um, so they get it maybe if the translation is there, um, but, but I just want to touch base with you, you know, that's, that's a, an American baseball term that has nothing to do with, with actually checking in with you and seeing how you are and all of that. It's, it's about getting to this bag safely. So it's learning to not use those kind of phrases, especially with kids, because they have no connection to it whatsoever. Uh, so the, the language aspect was huge. It, it helped me become a Twitter coach. And again, the, the, the cost of, of the ice time in the back of my head, even though that doesn't apply in Europe because all the rinks are owned by the government um, or the communities, just the idea of speak less, pick your words very, very carefully and use words that they can understand so that we can avoid misunderstanding. Didn't always work, um, but Nothing ever does. No, definitely. Work. I, I think also some of the things you mentioned totally align with my experience because um, I think that's maybe uh, a lot of cultures um, are similar with that when, when there's no one saying something that you have, have the feeling to need, that you need to fill the room with something. And then when you come here and then basically, um, and then you, then, you get to get, then you get to know all the fans here and they're not speaking that much at the beginning. It's like, am I doing anything wrong or something? 
And it was the, a little bit on the twist when I was still in Germany before I came here when I was living in Dresden. There was that, that one Finn, he has been on our show as well, Petrike Bivara. And the first few months when I met him, I was so confused because he wasn't speaking a lot. I was like a real, like it was really weird for me. But then after a while, you understand, okay, this is a little bit part of his background. And, and then you come here and then you even understand it better. And also with the example you made about the explanations, even I for myself can relate to this because when we, when Derek had, for example, his ice clinic, his first, and he was using the term keep, keep away, I had no clue what it is. And also like for me, even for me, even like I never used retrievals before I came here as a word. Because I, I used I just explained what's happening, but I did not use the word retrieval. But um, anyway, going back to your to experience overall, because for me it's again it's very curious that you had the opportunity to work in so many states and different cultures overall. That, but from a hockey perspective and from a teaching perspective, could you compare a little bit? And could you compare and contrast a little bit the coaching and teaching perspective? Uh, coaching and teaching approach in the States, um, Finland, Denmark, and Norway. This is actually, thank you, because I was, you, you triggered in my head what I was, one of the tangents I was gonna go off on, one of the, the little rabbit holes. Um, in, in the States, there's a, a and, and it's happening in Europe as well. I'm seeing it happen in Europe as well, uh, or in the places that I've been. There is a, a line drawn between team and individual. I, I can be a skills coach. I, I don't want to be a skills coach. I want to be a team coach, but I am training individual players on that team to be the best that they can be as individuals for that team. Whereas an independent skills coach is training individuals to be the best individual skill player as the coach is coaching them. And then you have guys like Ted Sweekenden, who is a team individual skills coach. So he's in a, um, He's in a, an environment where the club has said, these are the types of players we want to develop. This is the style of play we play. This is the, the, the style of player that we want to have. We are hiring you to help us develop this style of player. Our coaches are going to focus on coaching games. And I'm in the, the, the coaches coaching games side of things. Um, in the U S that's, that was it. You're, you're either a, an independent paid skills coach and you take private lessons and you take small groups and you do your, your camps and you do all of that. Um, or you're a team coach. Europe. When I, uh, when I visited Europe back in the eighties, and I visited Sweden and it, and it just turned my lights on. It said, this is where I want to be. Um, it was all about teams playing beautiful hockey together. And that's what I saw out of the Swedes. And that's what I saw out of the, the old Soviets. They were playing beautiful hockey together. They had lost their sense of self for the team. Mm. 
And I want to be careful saying that because they didn't lose their sense of self because we're talking just absolute beautiful hockey being played by, by incredible, highly skilled, talented players. But every, all of that talent was focused on how can this be better for the team? Did you see the last post from Ted about, uh, um, or one of his last posts about, um, about the Russian playing style compared with Guardiola? Yes. And the, the comment that the four guys without the puck are more yes. important than the guy with the puck. And that's been my basis my whole life, is, is the guys who don't have the puck actually have more importance to how the game can be played than the guy with the puck. We spend 98% of a hockey game without the puck. But our skill coaches and our, our team coaches spend 98% of their practice time on how to be with the puck. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. We need puck touches. We need to know what to do with that puck when we have it. And we need to know how to do it. We need to have good stick handling technique. We need to have a whole bunch of different tools on how to pass this puck, how to shoot this puck. So that when we do get it in those 2% moments, we're able to be successful with it. So I'm not taking anything at all away from the skill coaches. I think that there's a value to it. Um, I think that there's uh, great importance to what they're doing. I'm not one of them. So the other aspect that I bring to the, to the groups that I work with is a team first mentality. How can I be an individual inside of this team and how can I help this team be what it needs to be rather than how can this team help me? What can this team do for me? How many points can this team get me so that I can go to my career where I want to go? And Finland was, I think Finland is in the middle of a pendulum swing right now where when I first got there, this is now eight years ago, they were very, very deep into the, um, everybody on this team is an individual and we have to promote the individual first over the, over the needs of the team. So this individual needs an individual sports plan, an individual workout plan, an individual training plan, This is what this individual player is going to be doing during practices. Oh, and by the way, you get one team practice a week and, and go play games on the weekend and, and try and win. Uh, I think that that's shifting now uh, back towards the, the, the team aspect of the game. Uh, and again, going back to you know, Erica Westerland as the national team coach. The first thing he did is he gave them a team identity. And I can't say that as, as law. That's a generalism. I'm, I'm based on what, I'm, what I saw, what I'm watching. He gave those guys a team identity. He had great players. He had Timo Solani. So he had these great players, but he said, look, we're all going to come back to the middle. We're all going to play together on defense. We're all going to play together moving up into the offense. When you, when you miss a play, fine, no problem. Get yourself back inside the, the dots to the middle of the ice, uh, to the neutral zone, uh, to the defensive zone, and we're all going to play you know, five men together defense. That's not easy, especially when you're in this whole thing of individual, individual, individual. So we've got our national team playing that way, and we've got uh, the, the national 
coaching program saying uh, the individual is is prime. The you know we're we're coaching a person, and my response to that is no, we're coaching people. We're not coaching a person. We're coaching seventeen individual people working together for a common goal, and that common goal is to put more pucks in the net than the other team, and to be able to do that consistently. You know, it's fine to do it once, but it, it doesn't mean anything unless you do it over and over and over again. So Tampa Bay Lightning, a whole bunch of individual talent, but they decided together, this is how we're going to win a Stanley Cup. Uh, Colorado Avalanche. The reason I, I am really liking watching McKinnon now is his individual skill is unbelievable. He's worked so hard to, to develop that. He's got the, uh, the genetic makeup to do what he's doing, and that's fantastic. Everything he's doing is designed to make his team better. If I go on the ice with McKinnon, I'm going to be a better hockey player because he's on the ice with me. And that is what I think greatness really is. Is greatness is not the fact that Gretzky scored this many goals. Greatness is the fact that he's had twice as many assists in all of those seasons. He made everybody else on the ice better because he was on the ice. And it helped him win games and it helped him win Stanley Cups. And I think that's where a team like Colorado or a team like Tampa Bay in the NHL, uh, the, the great Pittsburgh teams, the great Detroit teams, all of them said, we're not doing this for me. We're doing this for us. Yeah. Um, the, the programs I've been in, 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 uh, in Denmark and Norway, they're somewhere in the middle of all of that. They're not quite sure whether they're individual skill factories or whether they're team, whatever. So you got the, uh, you know, you got the, the national coaches or the, the regional coaches that are coaching a very team game. And you got some coaches that are coaching a very individual skill game. Um, me, I put team before all else. And if I understand what I'm getting into in Vasa Sport, that's actually one of the goals that they have is to to keep is to balance where that pendulum is, so that we we develop the individuals so that the individual can go on and do what the individual needs, but we do it on behalf of the team that he's playing on. So, so is that yeah, yeah? Is, is that something that? Um you, you kind of hold in your mind for, for all age groups, or do you think that kind of pendulum swings um, from more of an individual focus at maybe younger ages and then focusing and then swinging more and more towards kind of more of a team focus as they get older, or just kind of steady throughout the development? It, there's nothing steady about development. Um, all development, both team and individual, is, is as as unsteady as you can imagine it's chaotic uh so we take a group of nine-year-olds and you're going to have some very very selfish nine-year-olds that, that will take the puck and they will go and you have some uh timid nine-year-olds that will get the puck and whack it forward because they're scared to to try and do something with it and you've got the uh you've got the nine-year-olds who for whatever reason, their genetic makeup is, is sharing. So they will pass the puck. They'll actually look to a teammate, to a friend, and they will share the puck with their friend. 
And so you've got this whole range of, of all of that. And so our goal there is to teach the selfish kid the importance of sharing, to teach the timid kid the importance of courage, and to teach the, the unselfish, the, the passing kid, that it's okay to shoot the puck sometimes. It's okay to skate with the puck sometimes. Uh, my background is on the, uh, the peewee and the bantam, the U12, U13, U14, U15. Uh, so D juniors going into uh, C2. Um, I'm, I'm one of the, uh, a friend of mine calls me the, the purple unicorn because I just don't <laughs> exist in the world. I don't want to coach U18 players. I don't want to coach U20 players, teams. Um, if, I got, if I got asked to be on the bench for a, a U20 world championship, I would say yes. Absolutely. I would, I would love to... Um, I would love to have pride in my country and, and, and do all of those things for that reason. But my background is on the 15 year old, the 13 year old. So at that age, they are beginning to understand that it's not just me against the world. Um, middle school, grade six, grade seven, grade eight, friendships are the most important thing in the world. You're starting to get independent from your parents. You're starting to be able to go out and do your own things. You can, you can go uh, to the town and, and walk around with your friends. You can, you know, you do other things. It's not that that doesn't happen before. It does. It just becomes the key factor. Uh, so when we're looking at, at uh, self-determination theory, we're, we're talking about autonomy. Um, and when we're talking about connectedness. So I and we can do this on our own without having somebody save us all the time. It's nice that there's somebody there to save me. If I make a really, really big mistake, it's nice that they're there, but it's me and my friends. We're going to go out. We're going to do things together. So that's how I coach hockey. It's we're friends here. We may not always like each other. We may not have picked the people who are in this locker room to be together, you know, but we have to be friends in here. And this is what friends do. I'm not, and again, I'm not saying everybody has to be a best friend and a chum and, and all of that stuff. No, we're, we're colleagues, we're friends. We're, we're, we, we work together for a common reason. How do we do that? At 11 and 12, it's changing it from uh, one against and two against to adding in Here's how the third person affects this. And I've known some really, really amazing uh, U8 and U7 uh, coaches that have used shapes to teach how to, how to play the game. And the biggest shape in hockey is the triangle. And they're teaching kids at seven and eight years old how to make triangles and, and that you have two passing options instead of one passing option. Uh, you have this defensive structure with a triangle. A triangle is very, very solid. It's very, very strong. Um, the moment the triangle becomes a line, it becomes weaker. It, it, it doesn't have the, um, the force that you can have. Uh, it doesn't cover everything defensively or offensively. So that idea of a triangle is, is huge. And then at, at 11, 12, 13, I'm starting to teach the idea that, hey, 
there's five of us. How many different triangles are there? There's the low triangle that, that we're all very, very used to because it's going forward. We all like to go forward. We want to go towards their net. But there's another part of this triangle that's behind us that we can pass the puck to the defenseman who's standing at the blue line or near the blue line. And that creates a different opportunity now, a different shape, a, a different way to attack. Uh, the uh, Another really excellent coach um, that I've stolen from, uh, John Lounsbury out of Boston, uh, he, he talks about different animals. Uh, so the, uh, and, and in Norway, we changed it a little bit. You've got the, the, the bear and, um, or he'll, he'll use the dog, the, the hunting dog. So F1 is the dog. Uh, F2 is, um, is the, is the hawk. So the hawk is, is up high, is, is waiting is looking, is watching. And then when that puck bounces open, F2 just sweeps in um, and, and pounces on and, and, and attacks its prey. And then, you know, F3 is, is the, the bloodhound, the, uh, the sniffing dog that is, is curious and waiting. And maybe F3 is, is down low, maybe F3 is up high, maybe F3 is, is covering for the defenseman. And so just introducing to the kids these kind of different ideas about shapes or animals or um, or anything like that and it's teaching them the idea that starting at about 11 or 12 it's not just a one-on-o or a two-on-o or a one-on-one um, that not everything is about me carrying the puck all the way it's about okay here's my teammate and here's my other teammate so that starts at about 11 or 12 now that I've got them at 14, I've got five-man units. I've got five players who can interchange positions um, because they know that this is the role of F1. And it doesn't matter if I line up for a face-off as a defenseman or a left winger. If I'm F1, I'm F1. I go. Uh, and so that, that idea, and that took years. That took three full years to get to the point where I've got five kids I can put out on the ice and they can interchange position. Well, I think what you do also, they're at the same, same point of, with these analogies, what you're using is that you basically build a picture and they had, for example, if I take the F1 as a dog, they have, they think a dog is barking and is aggressing and he's sprinting towards you. If I, for example, if I think about my lovely 11 year old Labrador, um, when, when I went with him to go to the, to the lake or something and I, I, I threw, I threw the, I threw some. What's what's the word now? From the trees. I don't, I don't, I don't know now. A stick. Uh, yeah, a stick, stick in, or a yeah, a stick. Yeah, a stick in the water, and he was hunting it, and he was going after it. It's like the same, basically. So for me, in my mind, so it's. I think it's a very powerful analogy, and it's. Um, I think it's really. A really, really good way to introduce it to the kids overall night. For me, it's very fascinating because you have been involved in youth hockey you now so for 45 years, and um, you have been highlighting to us several times that's the place where your passion is, your most passion. And um, I wanted to ask you this anyway. I wanted to go to this point as well. That um, first of all, why are you so extremely passionate and excited about youth hockey? And secondly. Um, why, why is it not so exciting for you to coach higher age 
ages. Or older boys, what I meant with this. And girls. And girls. Oh, yeah, of course, 100%. And I've had, uh, uh, I've had excellent uh, women playing um, on the different teams that I've coached. Uh, and that's, and then you got the question of whether they should be uh, mixed with the boys or whether they should have their own teams. And that's, that's a different podcast with probably a, a different, uh, I'll introduce you to that person. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's a huge question that you're asking and there's so many different parts to it that uh, this, this is a, um, this is a rabbit hole that goes so many different directions. Part of it was my experience when I was that age. Um, I had wonderful U8, U10 coaches uh, who were um, either complete volunteers um, or volunteer dads. Uh, Tom Conley was, he, he coached my brothers and, and he coached me and he was just that guy. He was just one of those amazing uh, U10 coaches that no kids, he did it out of the love of the game. Um, and he, he liked working with, with kids. When I got to Pee Wee and Bantam, things shifted. Uh, I, my family was moving a lot, so the stability wasn't there, but the hockey was my stability. I always played hockey no matter where I was in whatever town. Um, I played uh, soccer, football as well. Um, and then when I was in Maryland, um, I tried to pick up a lacrosse stick, but I was a little bit too late. Um, and I didn't put the time and effort into it. And I remember Derek Radebaugh was my coach in Maryland and he was, uh, he was an excellent guy. And he, he taught me the value of, of being a defenseman on a team. Um, I just started to play defense. Um, I'd been a forward many years and then I just started playing defense and he taught me how, how I could be a defenseman and pass the puck and move the puck and, and do all those things. Um, and, and then when I got to U 13, U 14, uh, everything started to shift and, I can look back on my own life and kind of go, okay, I wasn't the, the coolest kid. I was one of those not cool kids trying to fit in, trying to be part of the team. Uh, you can use whatever word you want to use. Um, I don't want to swear on your, your podcast, uh, but I was, yeah, I was, I could have, I was a prick at times. I was a little, little jerk. I didn't know how to uh, how to make friends easily as a kid, and my coaches at that point didn't help. And this is fourteen, um, and again, my family's moving a lot, so I'm I'm always trying to make new friends. I'm I'm never in a I'm not in a stable environment, so that had an impact on it. I had some really really good middle school teachers. Uh, who were very uh, supportive and helpful. And I almost <clears throat> went the 
science route because of one of my science teachers. And then I, uh, I had Mrs. Page uh, as an English teacher and she lit the light bulb of literature and, and English. Looking back on it, I wish I had stayed with science because I think my career would have uh, had a different trajectory if I was in sciences and technology um, rather than humanities and, and language. But just looking back on that, trying to think of, okay, what were the, you know, the defining experiences? When I went to, to become a teacher, I didn't become an elementary school teacher and I didn't become a high school teacher. Uh, I went, I found a school that had a middle level education certification program. So I am a uh, formally certified, not up to date, certified uh, grades five through grade nine teacher. Again, purple unicorn. There's a couple hundred of us out in the wild somewhere. Uh, very rare creature. Middle school was for me the defining part that if I if I figured out middle school for myself better, you know, and there's the there's the theory <clears throat> about people who go into psychology and psychiatry. Um, you, you go to your first psychiatry general introductory class and the really, really good guys will stand up there as professors and say, anybody who's here to diagnose yourself, please leave right now. Because that's not what this this profession is for. Um, I should have been one of those people. I should have diagnosed myself and said, "Okay, this isn't for me." I'm I'm trying to correct my own history. I'm trying to correct my own wrongs. Middle school is also when the opposite of friendships happen. It's when the bullying begins. It's when the kids get isolated. They get shunned. Um, they're not included. And that happened to me. And it carried all the way through high school. The difference between middle school and high school was the supportive adults around me. So I survived middle school well. Um, not, not great. Uh, I didn't have a, a stellar school experience. Uh, but those teachers in those middle schools guided me enough that I was okay. High school, high school's not like that in the US. High school is uh, nine different classes and nine different classrooms with nine different teachers and nobody really gets to know you well, um, even though they say they do. Uh, and you're, you're basically there with your peers and, and your peers are anywhere from, you know, three years older to you than you all the way down to three years younger as you, you go through. Uh, I hated high school. If I could go back and redo any part of my life experience and have a better experience, it would be high school. Um, and, and part of it was my own fault. I didn't know how to, how to handle it. I didn't know how to, to do the things that you're supposed to do to have a successful high, high school experience. High school is junior hockey. High school is U16, U18. Um, when I look at junior hockey, and I look at the people who are very, very good at coaching junior hockey. I'm not one of them. I'm not that person. I'm so far into the, um, I don't know where I was going with that. I don't know where I'm far into. But the idea of creating a safe environment 
in the locker room and on the ice where these kids can develop and be nurtured and, and grow. For me, that's middle school. That's grade six, grade seven, grade eight. That's 12, 13, 14, 15. You, I love the training to train stage. I love this stage that is, um, I don't know this yet, and I will try anything. Yeah. So it's exploration. It's it's all these things. So so that was a, a interesting wild tangent that I haven't really dealt with in, in a long time. Um, high school, uh, junior hockey. If they know how to train, you're not coaching them how to train anymore. You're expecting them to train. Mm. Here's your training program. Go. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's really um, interesting, right? Like, I, I think if you look at it from from that kind of perspective, where the the age group there, like grade five through nine, which uh, my math is right, it's like from ten to fourteen ish. Um, it's a it's a pretty powerful point in life, right? A lot of a lot of social development, a lot of emotional development, and a lot of just psychological development as well and I, I think you're, you're spot on there like we're having such an impact as an adult and having that kind of connection to adults and everything like that that can really be helpful to that age of kids right and I want to dive into to how you provide that for your athletes and before we talked about um, kind of the autonomy based practices and everything that you do there but I, I want to tie that into the kind of bigger picture and and ask like what how do you ensure that you're building a relationship with your athletes at that age? And, and how do you ensure that they know that you're there to support them and you are going to let them try things, let them make decisions and, and you're going to have their back if, if things like you know, maybe, maybe don't work out or um, anything like that. There's direct means and there's even more indirect means to doing that. Um, and, and again, this isn't, uh, Dave Laszlo's uh, genius ideas that are going to revolutionize the world. These are these are common uh, practices by really really good teachers, really really good therapists, really really good um, anybody who works with other people. Uh, and and this goes a little bit back to to the culture uh, question earlier. Uh, childhood has its own culture. Uh, tweens have their own culture, that, that in-between child and teenager. Uh, so in, in Finland, uh, you mentioned Uli, and another guy I'm gonna talk about is uh, Tatu and then Mika. Uh, Mika Toki is, is established at Veramaki right now. Um, I got to know them best by sitting quietly in the sauna. Exactly. And after about three to six months of sitting quietly in the sauna, you then go to the sauna and they say, Terve. they say hello. And you're like, oh, wait a second, somebody spoke. And that says, and, and, and I'm, you know, the names I mentioned, those aren't the guys I'm talking about because those are other students that we were in classes together. And, you know, Veramaki, you go on the Oralampi trip 
so that everybody has to be together in a tent and talk to each other and, and, and work together. Uh, so that's different. That's a team building stuff. But I'm talking about the other guys at in the sauna in Veramaki, the other people. You see the same people over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, one of them says, hello. And you're like, who is this? Wait, what? Huh? And three months later, after that, that whole breathing time that you've had, that whole space that you've just, I'm still here. I'm coming back. I'm still here. I'm here another day. I'm here another day. Here I am again. Here I am again. Then they're like, oh, this guy's here. Yeah. Okay. He keeps coming back. I guess, I guess we can be friendly to him. Hi. Six months later, three months later, you're having political discussions. You're having, uh, uh, you know, financial discussions. You're having uh, which sports team is, is doing uh, poorly in, in the Champions League discussions with guys that, that wouldn't talk to you for six months. And that taught me a very, very important piece to this that I think I knew, but it, it really drove it home. The most important thing to developing a relationship, the, the thing that parents have over everybody else is simply being there. The best parents, or you could go the opposite direction if you wanted to, but the best parents are simply there every single day. You know, in, in, a, in a worst case scenario, you know, maybe it's a foster parent, maybe it's an adoptive parent or whatever, but the, the attachment happens simply out of being there every day. And then you start developing the relationship of why am I here every single day? This is my job. I am here for you every single day. And then hello becomes how are you doing? And then how are you doing becomes hey, have you seen a good movie lately? And then that becomes, oh, I understand you had a test in school. How did that go? And then that becomes, uh, hey, you missed practice yesterday because of a football match. Not saying you missed practice. You're saying, wow, that's really exciting. Here's something else about you that we can talk about, that we can build a relationship on. And, and so knowing those things uh it's the stupid things like and and i say stupid and i don't mean the word stupid because it takes effort it takes uh time you have to know when their birthdays are and we're talking about kids we're not talking about adults we're talking about kids but even with adults it's nice to to say happy birthday that's one of the wonderful things about facebook that i actually really really like it reminds me of when everybody's birthdays are because I can't keep track of 468 birthdays. I have a list of birthdays of my team on my desk. And I have to reflect on that list every single day. Whose birthday is coming up? What do we need to do? Um, the, other, the other piece to that, so you got the I'm there. But then the other connection, and this is science, um, it's, it's physical contact. And something as simple as a high five. If I make physical contact with somebody, if I shake your hand for more than three seconds, we are actually, uh, I believe it's the endorphins that are uh, being stimulated 
And we are creating a, an unconscious bond. So a high five actually isn't long enough to create that unconscious bond, but the high five is a, a symbol of it. The high five is a, um, for, for my team and, and my programs, it's become a tradition. Practice is not over until you've given the coach a high five. Once you've given him the high five, that signals that practice is now done. Now, we use high fives for a whole bunch of other things. You scored a goal, fist bump. Uh, you, you, uh, you're walking in the door, high five. Okay, it's a greeting as well. But the tradition now is it's not done until you've given coach a high five. Um, so it's that physical piece in addition. So you, you put all of these itty bitty tiny little details together and you're developing relationships with all these kids. I remembered it was your birthday. Um, and and I, I try to remember in all sorts of different ways. I'll say nothing until we get on the ice and then I'll stop practice uh, 10 minutes into the, into the whatever we're doing and I'll pull everybody in. And if this was the US, I would be uh, uh, spending what, $5 a minute to do this, but we sing happy birthday just randomly out of the blue. And in Norway, we sing it in either Norwegian or, or English, depending on, uh, it's a very international uh, community that I'm in. So we've got Americans, we've got Brits, we've got um, a whole, it's the oil industry. So we've got all different sorts of people uh, from different communities. So we sing to them, hopefully in their language. Um, that's team bonding. That's uh, creating a sense of community. We not only am I there for them, but they are there for each other also. And so that goes into that, that whole identity piece within that self-determination. I belong to this group. I am part of this community. Uh, I also do things that are team based. Um, so in a large group, we've got uh, so many, um, so many kids in the group that I can't use just one locker room. I have to use two, two locker rooms, which is disappointing because the locker room is the time when they really truly gather and, and learn about each other and stuff. But the locker rooms have to be dealt with a certain way. Um, I don't punish an individual child for leaving the locker room a mess. That's the team's locker room. The team is responsible for taking care of that locker room. So I don't, I also don't put, you know, okay, the last one out has to clean up. That's not one of my rules. My rule is the locker room needs to be clean. How are you guys going to handle that is up to you, but the locker room needs to be clean. So if somebody's throwing tape on the ground, you can handle that in a whole bunch of different ways. You could pick up that tape and throw it away for them. You could pick up that tape and toss it back to them so that they get another attempt to put the, the, the piece of tape into the, the trash can. Okay. And that's also fine. Uh, you could also tell them, Hey, you missed, go pick up your tape. That's also fine. But if the locker room is left a mess, it's not one person's fault. It's the entire group's fault. So we're building that relationship. Uh, who are the leaders? Who are the followers? Who are the, who are the kids who are going to take responsibility for this, who are going to be accountable, 
who are the kids who are going to hold other kids accountable for this? And there's all sorts of different people and, and, and we've met them all where you've got the kid who I throw it, I miss, and you got the kid who will go and pick it up because that's the type of person they are and they'll throw it away. They'll save you. Okay, fine. Great. Wonderful. Um, so it's, it's figuring out things like that. That sense of, of group identity is building the relationship for the individual as well. And my role in that group that, I've, that I try to discuss and inform and, and create an understanding of is not to be the leader of that group. It is to be the, the support. It is to provide the framework for how to behave inside of that group. And that means um, being accountable to each other. That means being responsible for each other. Uh, that develops the relationship. So they've designed practices, they've designed uh, rosters, they've designed lineups. Um, I ask them questions all the time. And, and does it mean that we get everything correct? No. But I provide the framework for them so that they can figure this all this stuff out. And that's another reason why the five-man uh, rotational system is working for us is they trust each other and they trust me that this is going to be okay, that this is going to work. Even if we make a mistake, it's going to work. We'll figure it out. We'll support each other. Um, so that's, that's where that whole piece comes from in, in developing the relationships with, with the different kids. And like I said earlier, I don't know if I, I, I could, but I don't know if I could do it as effectively at 18 or 20 years old with those players. Hmm. Well, you, you mentioned um, that you have them kind of design their own practices. And, and we, we talked about this before uh, this interview as well. But I want to jump into that a little bit more because that, that's something that's, that's really exciting for me because I, I think coaches, or at least a lot of coaches, don't give kids credit for being able to be creative and, and planning and organizing and everything like that when it comes to their own training. So I want to dive into that. How did that start? How do you run those kind of things, and and um, you know what has been the the impact on the the team bond, the team, uh, the sense of autonomy, and everything like that? There's also a sense of ownership when you do that, and I think that's what's really really big for me. And this actually started, uh, it started very simple, and and it started with basically giving the players choices of different things that we can do. If I want to have uh, skating exercises at the beginning of the practice, does it really matter which skating exercises we do today or next week or whatever, as long as it's some sort of skating exercise? Uh, maybe in my, my plan, my, my monthly or my, my year plan, we're working on turning. We're working on edges and crossovers and sharp turns and all of that. So it's it's giving, you know, when, when I just had 15 players and two goalies on the ice, if I had a goalie coach, great. Um, then that part was taken care of. And I would go to the players and I'd say, okay, guys, um, are we doing uh, Russian circles today or are we doing uh, linear crossovers today? And so the kids would say, uh, oh, we really like the Russian circles. 
okay, I'm working on turning, I'm working on edge control, I'm working on, on pivots from forward to backward and backward to forward and, and whatever. Does it really matter how we do that? Does it matter which drill we use to do that? And that developed into, okay, I'd really like to do a lot of drills that involve um, opening up to the puck so that you can face the passer who's passing you the puck uh, before you, you get out of the zone. Uh, here's five or six different things that we've actually already done in our practices. Which one should we do? You know, pick three. So it's, it's not giving them a blank tablet and say, here, design the practice. It's giving them the themes and it's giving them the choices within those themes. So here's the framework. Here's the different options we can do. How do we want to do this? Uh, that has gone as far as uh, we're going to run a station-based practice today or tomorrow or next week or whatever. We're going to run a station-based practice. We have four goalies. Um, these are the things we need to do. You guys know all the different drills that we've done. Give me some ideas. How, how am I going to design this? How am I going to, you know, I'll, I'll do the, the mapping. I'll do the, this drill goes into this space on the ice because we can accomplish this if we use, um, I need a wall and, and I need a goal line. Okay, I can do that here. Um, I, I don't need anything. I just need open space. Okay, I can do that in the neutral zone or I can do that in the top of a zone or, or whatever. Um, the goalie needs a crease. Okay, uh, is that a cross ice crease or is that a regular uh, middle of the, of the zone crease? Um, oh, it could be a cross ice crease. Okay, good, we can use that space over there. I'll design all of that part. But I've given the kids the opportunity to say, well, if this is the theme, uh, we think we should do this small game uh, we think we should do, uh, here, here's the warm up that we want to do. When we get on the ice, we want to do our, our, our shooting warm up or our passing warm up or our skating with pucks on edges warm up or whatever. And these are all things that the kids know. Um, a lot of my drills have, have names attached to them so that it's not trying to describe the drill. It's saying we want to, and um, I use Erica Westerlin's uh, transitions book a lot. And the conversation I got lucky to have with them on, on those occasions. So I have Westerland two on two, Westerland three on one, uh, low Westerland. And they all know what those are. Um, I have Johnny Phone Booth, which comes from USA Hockey. Um, and that's uh, Johnny Goudreau and, and tight turns uh, towards the wall, puck protecting and things. They all know what these things mean. Um, and then what's nice in. <clears throat> in being in a foreign country is, so we have a, a scissor play where two players overlap going in opposite directions. And I you know, make the, the signal, this looks like a pair of scissors. Well, scissor is a foreign word. So it's a cool name for a drill or a cool name to describe something. <clears throat> in Danish or, or Norwegian, it's socks, a pair of socks. Um, and so when I say scissor, they immediately get the idea of the hockey thing we're doing, not 
the thing to cut with. Um, and that goes back to the imagery and, and things like that. Uh, this season, I've done a whole bunch of small games practices where entire practices are, are small games based. And they understand that small games can have different, uh, different ways of scoring. So small games might be able to, to keep the puck in possession uh, among a group of players. Small games might be uh, skating the puck through a gate um, or passing the puck through the gate. That can be a way to score. It also is, you know, the cross ice or the neutral zone where you have goals set up. But the goals don't need to be in normal places. They can be on the top of a circle. They can be um, in the middle of the neutral zone. And I'll ask them, what games are we playing today? So the only thing that they know is it's a small games and, and full ice game practice. And they pick which games we're playing. And 99% of my games have some sort of constraint or rule that says, um, in order to get this point, you have to accomplish this task. So the gate passing game, in order to get a point, you have to pass the puck between two cones or two tires. Um, the Royal Road game, in order to get a point, you have to make a pass or skate the puck over the middle of the, the goal the center of the goal before shooting. If the puck doesn't go across the goal, then the goalie's not moving. And so even if you score, it doesn't count. Uh, and then I've introduced things like uh, colored pucks. So an orange puck, and I actually have regular regulation pucks that are different colors. An orange puck means that you have to make a Gretzky play. You have to make a play from behind the net before you can score. This is in addition to whatever rule you're playing with. So you're playing three on three cross ice and, and the regular rule is Royal Road. So you have to make the cross, the pass or the skate over the center line. And then the orange puck gets put out there. And now they have to figure out Royal Road plus Gretzky. So I've given them the task of creating their own practices without telling them you're creating your own practices. Um, just by giving them choices, by giving them opportunities to decide what they want to do. But within that, I've already developed the framework for them. Here's the theme of the practice, or here's the idea, or here's, uh, we're, we're not going to do uh, big ice flow drills. We're going to do small station stuff. What small stations are we going to do? The benefit to all this is they have ownership. They design the practice, and maybe it's not every kid that designed the practice, but they feel like they have a say in this. They work harder. This is my practice. This isn't this isn't coach's practice. This is this is the practice I designed. I like this. I get to have fun in this because I designed this, or I I suggested this drill. And that's another key point: is is I try to give credit to whoever suggested the drill. Okay, this is Rick's drill. He, he thought we should do this today. Uh, Derek wanted to play that small game. So we're going to do that small game later in the practice. And now, ooh, my drill. Yes, I got to do it. Um, and, and I'll go, you know, uh, Billy made a good suggestion, but we don't have time for it today. So we're going to do that next week. And now Billy feels like, okay, I got heard. I got listened to. Um, so all of these are designed um, around that idea of, of ownership and autonomy and, and, and cooperation and, and things like that. 
at the end of the day, when you really think about all the drills we do, what's really the most important part of it? The most important part is that the kids get a feeling of, of competence, of, of development. I get to go out there, I get to sweat, I get to have fun, I get to work hard, I get to get better. And I get to be a part of this whole thing. Um, so it's, it's less, for me, it's less about that, that hard skill of can you turn to the left, can you take a slap shot, and more about that soft skill when this kid grows up and becomes a lawyer or becomes a, um, a businessman or, or becomes a, a father or a mother or a, uh, <clears throat> you know, whatever, a doctor. Oh, and, and maybe this person grows up and becomes a hockey player. Are they good people? Can they cooperate? Can they, can they problem solve? Can they, can they take ownership of something and go forward with it? and move forward into it. And that's my idea of coaching. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I, I really I really like that perspective there at the end there, where you, you just say like, because that's, I agree with you, the most important part of, of anything that we do is, is how it impacts, you know, how it impacts them as individuals, as humans, and um, and everything like that. So that that's a, a really interesting way to look at it. And unfortunately, uh, we do not have too much more time today due to due to my own time constraints. We've got class here in about 10 minutes. But um, really quickly at the end, we always ask a final question. Uh, just if you have any final messages or final thoughts for us or our listeners regarding youth hockey, youth hockey culture, or anything like that. The most important resource and not even resource, the most important part, facet of youth hockey and youth sport is the parent. It's, it's the mother and the father. Um, it's what, what goes on at home, away from whatever arena you're in. Uh, that is the most difficult aspect also. Um, with Corona this year, with, with COVID, parents have not been involved as much as they normally are. They're not in the ranks. They're not uh, standing and watching every little detail. So the, the feedback loop is very, very different this year. Um, but it's, it, that doesn't take away any of the importance of it. Nothing that I do can be successful unless the parents support what it is that I'm doing. Um, so any of the, the struggles that I've had have been my inability to get the parents on board. It's very easy to coach 13 year olds who are blank slates, uh, who, are, who have no parent uh, input whatsoever. Uh, the, uh, the, the kid who gets dropped off and picked up and that's it. And the parent has no uh, conversation about hockey or, or whatever. That kid is, is super easy to coach, but that kid doesn't exist. Um, I don't coach orphans. Uh, everybody's dream in coaching new sports is to coach orphans because then 
then you eliminate that and you have total say. But the the parent role in this whole thing is huge. And, and when the parents don't buy in or they change their minds, um, it has a direct impact on the development of the kid within the team, within as an individual. Um, and, and so developing that part of the relationship, uh, that's the aspect that if I could go back 25 years and, and put myself on a course of study to figure out how to, how to better communicate and how to better build relationships with parents, that's where I would go. Um, I'm not good at it. So all of these, these wonderful ideas we've been talking about today uh, are pretty much moot if, if I can't develop the buy-in from the family. Many families will buy in uh, just out of, out of goodness, out of kindness, out of a desire to see their, their child be successful. Uh, but the moment that anything I do goes against their idea of it, I'm out. I'm done. Uh, the dinner table and the car ride home have a bigger impact on a child's development than anything I can do. Um, unless I'm doing the opposite. If I'm, if I'm a wretched, if I'm a terrible coach, I can have a greater impact by getting this kid to quit hockey, by getting this kid to have a miserable experience. I'm, I could be very powerful in that sense, more powerful than any parent, but to have a positive experience in youth sport, it has to come from the home. It has to come from, uh, what happens in the car ride, what happens at the dinner table, what happens, uh, <clears throat> like I said, when, when I ask a kid how he did on a test at school, that has an impact. When a parent asks a kid, how was practice today? What'd you do? What was fun? How was the coach? That has an impact. And if there's anything that I could do to better that impact, that's where I've got to go next. And that's what I'm hoping to do in, in Vasa. That's, that's one of my, my primary uh, goals is to have a, a continuing positive relationship with the parents, even if it's the parents teaching me how to do it. Um, and I'm not talking about friendships. I'm talking about a professional development relationship with the major stakeholder in in the whole business. Um, the kids, the kids will like you or they won't like you. And they might like you today and not like you tomorrow. And they might change their mind tomorrow and like you again the next day. Um, that part is, is normal. It's, it's the rest of it. It's where are you within the dinner table conversation? Where are you within the phone calls that happen between the parents or the parents and uh, the club? Uh, that's going to have a greater impact on, on anything that a coach can do in, in, in youth sport. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's my, my wrap up. That's my. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thanks David. And, and thanks for the, the final yeah. thought there. And, and we really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure talking to you and, and getting to know your, your ideas and your insights a little bit more. So yeah, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
So thanks one more time for David to join the show today. It was a great conversation with him, something that I'm really passionate about and it was a lot of fun to, to chat with him about the ideas that he's picked up, the um, kind of ideas that he's implemented with his team and, and everything like that and just kind of hear his opinions and his thoughts about youth hockey culture and, and kind of comparing and contrasting North America and Europe here. And I think the, the place that I want to start here in the reflection, Rick, is it's just how he builds relationships with his athletes and, and how he highlighted the importance of showing the athletes that he's going to be there every day and and not just, you know, show up and, and be there, but also just kind of show up and, and care about them and care about them every day and care about their development every day and and how that really starts to lead to those those little things, you know, and, and getting to know them more and more with their their birthdays, their dog names, their brothers and sisters and parents and everything like that, and just continuously building these um, these relationships with the athletes. And then the, he mentioned the importance of, of physical contact with fist bumps and high fives and everything like that. And I, I really, I think that's so important, especially with, with youth athletes, because it's, it's important for them to know that, you know, the person teaching them, the person showing them all these things actually cares, you know, and, and actually wants to help them get better and become better people, better athletes and, and better hockey players. I think that was a, an important piece of the conversation for sure. And I think especially these fist bumps, they are just very, very, very essential when we come. I think they're also part of nonverbal, nonverbal communication because it definitely shows that we pay attention to the athletes and that we recognize them and it also this tool is also written down in the book from Dr. Wade Gilbert, and it's called Positive Touch. And I think, um, I do not remember 100% how the study was, but I think there was one NBA team or something during this season who had the most amount of positive touches and they won the NBA championship, but I'm not 100% sure how that was anymore. And um, overall, I think you have been mentioning this already, that David influences from different cultures is just insane and how many clubs and teams and countries he has been coaching already in his in his 30 years and I, I would like to touch on his experience as well in Finland because um, um, obviously you as well from the United States I'm from Germany but still when when you come from different countries from different cultures to Finland um, um, plenty of people make similar experiences especially when you get to know Finns um, they are overall, as we as we discussed with David, they are very patient people, and it needs a little bit time to win their trust and until they talk to you. But um, once once you won their trust, they are overall they are wonderful people, and I really enjoy living here in Finland. And there's such so much cooperation in this country, and this is a, a very very big strength. And um, something I also would like to touch on it's just David's reason for being involved in youth hockey. And I found it wonderful how he's been sharing his experiences, why he's involved. And um, first of all, that during middle school and high school, I think he said that it wasn't always easy for him in the school, but also in the hockey environment. Um, he did not have certain support which he needed to continue his development and his growth. There are certain people um, or certain coaches that he absolutely uh, um, is not thankful for what they have done to him. And I think that just shows why he wants to be involved in youth hockey and why this is so crucial and important to him. 
Yeah, it was it was really interesting to hear that and how that's kind of influenced his motivation to be in youth hockey and and to provide that positive experience to kids that we've talked about so much on our show and and I I think it's just so important to remember that you know that at the end of the day it's it's about that positive experience right it's you know it it's more than just do they develop it's more than just are they becoming good hockey players it it's do they love the sport and do they want to come back are they going to be your future hockey parents your future referees your future team managers sponsors everything like that are they going to be there in the future are they going to come back and i i think that that is such an important highlight and i think um it, it goes into a little bit providing that positive experience he, he talks about kind of the the ownership and the the feeling of ownership and autonomy that he wants to give his players and we talked a little bit about these autonomy-based practices that he's run and how how he's kind of progressed that autonomy throughout those three years that he's had those players. And I, I really like this idea because, you know, we, we talk about need supportive coaching all the time and autonomy being one of those needs. And I, I think it look, gets overlooked in youth sports all the time by just the excuse that, oh, they're kids. They can't, you know, they can't take ownership of this yet. They, they don't, we don't have to give them kind of this autonomy uh, feeling or anything like that because they don't know better than us they they don't know anything they they can't they can't be in charge of their own development kind of thing and and i i think that's such a backwards way of thinking and, and I, I don't think we give kids enough credit for what they can actually do for themselves and think for themselves and and problem solve for themselves so i think his description of his autonomy based practices is something that that i'm looking forward to stealing in the future and, and using for myself and getting you know that level of autonomy to my players so that they they feel that need has been met and they they feel that they have control over their own development um which i i, I again I, I just don't think we give kids enough credit for being able to do something like that yeah it's insane overall how autonomy driven david is um and i think also all his thoughts how he's approaching this autonomy supportive coaching is um, very athlete-centered and very development-orientated. He really wants that the youth players have the opportunity to learn, that they take responsibility, as you said, also that they take ownership. Because I think we also need to think about this from this perspective. You have been mentioning that at some point, um, former hockey players, they become um, maybe hockey coaches or parents. And I think it's so essential that we start with autonomy supportive coaching already in somewhere from the grassroots level and continued from the youth until the junior level because um, it needs to be there right away that they really learn to take responsibility for their learning and that they also take to uh, that they also learn to take responsibility for their actions because um, obviously also when they get older and maybe they go to older age groups like under 18 under 20 um, it's going to be much, much, much more difficult for them. And maybe also if there's a coach who has this kind of thinking um, to really help to continue to help uh, to really help to continue the players to develop and to grow. Because at the end of the day, as we have been discussing right now, it really needs to start from the beginning. And the other point I would like to touch on, we have been discussing with David, um, is first of all that how he's actually giving his his drills names. I think I've been hearing, or we have been hearing this before, but how with, 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 with 
what kind of awareness he is doing it. Because I think this is, I think personally for me as a coach, this is something I need to do better because um, I, I'm, I'm very bad with being creative and giving my drill names. And he is really good with it. For example, he gave the Westerland two against two example. So he just says that and then the kids know already, okay, now we're going to play this. So I think this is something I definitely need to implement much, much better in my coaching because it's very powerful for the reason that First of all, it saves a lot of, lot of time. And secondly, um, it also saves money. As we all know, uh, hockey is very, very expensive. Of course, depending on the country you are in one country, it's more expensive than the other not, but at the end of the day, it's a very, very expensive sport. And the other thing I think is very, very, I mean, what you can implement very well, I think it doesn't matter with age group because it basically, um, makes athlete think about the visual picture is that when he was talking about the forecheck, for example, that the forward one is the dog, the forward two is the hawk, and the forward three is the um, sniffing dog. So I think this is very powerful because for the reason that you visualize it and you have these things, or you have this, this, uh, this in your mind, for example, if you think about the dog, then you think maybe about someone who is rushing all the time, who's giving pressure and all that stuff. So I think this is a very useful analogy for players and it's good for teaching. Yeah, and it, it goes back to our, our conversation with um, Nick Winkleman, the, the language of, uh, sorry, the author of language of coaching and how we can emotionally connect to our athletes and, and the feedback and the cueing and everything like that. But I think also with the naming of the drills and the, the, the player um, roles with kind of the forecheck example there, like you can also emotionally connect. So going a step further from, you know, Westerland two on two, can you think of, you know, a, a name for that, for that drill or that game that, you know, the kids, the kids see in their, their everyday life, you know, when they're on social media or on YouTube or anything like that. Um, can you, or on video games, can you think of a name like, you know, maybe Fortnite two on two or something like that, something that kind of connects to them emotionally so that they can start to better remember that kind of thing. And, and then when you go into the autonomy-based practices, they're like, oh, we want to do the Fortnite game. We want to do the Fortnite game. And so I think it, it provides just another powerful tool in which our language can, can kind of help our players and, and, and help us provide our players with need supportive coaching. And, and I think that's, that's something that's really interesting for sure. And I think the, the final piece for me is, is just, you know, we didn't talk about it a lot today, but he's one of not not our first guest on that has had a teaching degree i know we had um sean hathaway on a while ago and i i believe there's been a couple others but i again i just i want to highlight the importance of of the fact that the coaches are, are teachers as well right and and how like it, it's really interesting you know we've talked to over 50 people now on our show but the the amount of teachers we get on true teachers you know whether that's professors or coaches with a teaching um, degree or background or anything like that you know it's just highlighting so well that i I, that i think a lot of people kind of skip over is the fact that that coaches have to be to be teachers as well and really kind of teach not just their athletes but also the people that they're coaching and i I think that's just just an important thing to to highlight here at the end well i think um, nothing else to add there. Only one thing I would like to add about David is that I think 
whoever will be working next year with with David as a kid, um, they can be very excited because he's so passionate about youth hockey and he cares so much about the players due to his experiences and his influence in its own life. And uh, he's very powerful with also bringing it over and framing this as a story. So I think this is very, very essential. And I think a good place to wrap it up from my side is that as David has been saying in our episode that we definitely, we cannot judge 13 to 14 years old because first of all, they are still growing then they're developing mentally and also they're going so many other things on in their life. They go to school, they have their friends, they have their parents, they're constantly in different environments. So I think this is, this is very, very, very crucial to consider. Yeah, really important to, to kind of understand your athletes, but not kind of make judgments on them, I think is, is, a, is a good way to do it. Know what's going on in their lives and everything like that. But don't don't judge them for for things like that. That's a that's an important final thing as well. So um, thank you everybody for listening, and we will see you guys next time. But before that, make sure you connect with the show on social media at the Coaches Road and and send us some some feedback or some future guest recommendations or topic recommendations. We always like to to hear from our listeners. So uh, you can do that on our website, thecoachesroad.com. And until next time, we will see you then. Bye.